0: How could a God who is perfect create a world that's so imperfect? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello everybody and welcome once again to org. Today is Thursday, July 9th of 2009. And as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for downloading this message. We do count it as a blessing to have you here with us today. And I hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, it's been pretty mild here lately. This morning, uh, it was mild enough out. It was about uh, you know 80 degrees or so. And so I invited a, a fellow pastor here in the northwest Arkansas area to go on a bike ride with me, and this is not just a regular bike ride, this is a mountain trail bike ride, and it was, uh, man, it was pretty challenging. Sometimes I I think, I must think that I'm 18 years old or something, like I can just do this stuff uh, just on a whim. No problem. Uh, <laughs> the good news is I survived. The bad news is I know that I'm going to wake up really, really sore tomorrow. But uh, man, just an awesome opportunity to uh, to get on this mountain bike trail that actually goes around the lake here. And it's something like 10 or, or maybe even 15 miles. It's somewhere in between there. Uh, but it was definitely difficult, um, but I enjoyed it. It was uh, really awesome to get out with another pastor from this area. And just to let you guys know what uh, what's going on with our church plant here, uh, this week we, uh, we went out, and we went door-to-door uh, at some apartment complexes and through some neighborhoods, handing out invitations to a vision meeting that we're going to be having this Saturday. So if you guys could be in prayer about this vision meeting that we're going to be having on Saturday. You know, we told people, you know, we're not looking for a commitment from you or anything, we just want to tell you about our church. And there's a pizza hut down the street, which, uh, you know, gives their room away. Basically, they've got like a little conference room on the side and they let you go in there if you've got more than 10 people. So, um, we've reserved that room and, uh, they've got a TV with a DVD player in there. And so we'll be able to, uh, to show some clips, uh, of what we're going to be doing. And so anyway, if you guys could be praying for that, I would really appreciate it. And by the way, while we were walking through these neighborhoods, it was kind of interesting. You know, we, we talked to a lot of people and, uh, my wife and I came across one woman who says, um, you know, our church is ethnically and economically uh, diverse. That's our vision, to have an ethnically and economically diverse church. And uh, so this woman, she sounds like she's really in agreement with what we want to do. And it turns out she's, uh, she's a Quaker. She says she's going to a Quaker church because they believe that we all draw from the same well. Everybody of all religions draw, uh, draws from the same well. And so we should respect the way the diversity in which people worship God, whether that's through Christianity or, uh, you know, what have you. That was her implication. And man, let me just tell you, you know, we're standing there on her front yard. uh, And so I am just dying to say something like, well, what if somebody's way of worshiping God excludes people who worship many gods? Or what if my way of worship excludes somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is God? Of course, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to be uh, totally rude right there on her property. Uh, you know, for all I know, her husband would come out with a shotgun, or she'd get upset, or you know, who knows. But uh, you know, I, I tried to be respectful. Uh, gave her an invitation, and and she gave it right back, saying that she wouldn't be interested. So uh, that's okay. But that was that was very interesting. And if you run into somebody who says something like that, um, you know, that all religions lead to the same God, or all religions are true. Well, you know, religions make exclusive truth claims, and conflicting truth claims can't both be true. Something can't be A and non-A at the same time. The central doctrine of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the incarnate God come down to redeem humanity. And any religious system which doesn't hold that doctrine necessarily is in conflict With Christianity, so it's impossible for Christianity to be true at the same time and in the same sense as any religion, which denies this core truth of Christianity. So anyway, I wanted to bring that up, but I decided not to because I didn't want to be uh, confrontational right there on her own property. And I figure if she's really interested in learning what we're about, uh, then you know she can come get some free pizza at Pizza Hut, and I'd be more than happy to explain to her why uh, her theology can't be true. It's not consistent with itself. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with our lesson today. Of course, this is our Knowing God series where we're talking about the things that we can know about God through both scripture and reason. And hold on, we've got like four or five more lessons to go before we are completely done with this series. And I know that you guys are kind of probably relieved to hear that. Uh, (laughs) But this has been a good study because we've really set some foundations about God's nature and his attributes that will benefit all of us in the long run. Well, you know, most of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Uh, In recent years, two of his Narnia books have actually been turned into movies, which turned out to be box office hits. And few literary scholars uh, today or, you know. 20 30 40 50 years ago few literary scholars would deny that C S Lewis was one of the greatest writers of the past century even though the majority of his writings were Christian in nature but C S Lewis wasn't always a Christian in fact he started out his academic career as an atheist he wasn't converted by an evangelist and he wasn't converted by you know maybe a masterful presentation of the gospel message instead he was converted when he came to the realization that his main objection to Christianity was the fact that there was so much evil in the world. Yes, it was the presence of evil which actually, and ironically, revealed the certainty of God's existence to him. Obviously, Lewis wasn't one to just accept the, uh, the assumptions of an argument a priori, so when he looked at the assumptions behind this objection that he had toward Christianity, his atheist philosophy was in a checkmate position. So rather than just accepting the fact that uh, he recognized the great amount of evil in the world, C.S. Lewis brought it back one step further, and he started questioning his assumptions, asking himself questions like, where do I get this idea that some things are inherently evil and some things are inherently good? Well, in his book titled Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, quote, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Quote. In other words, he realized that evil was much more than a matter of individual opinion. But in order to know what is morally wrong, there must be something above and beyond the material world which sets the standard for what we would consider to be morally good. As Lewis considered the options that he had, and uh, asking why this is, he realized that the only option which truly explained the moral law was the existence of a moral law giver. The existence of a transcendent God who gives us a sense of moral perfection. Yet, in order for God to do that, God himself must be morally perfect. And so thus we conclude that one of the attributes of God is moral perfection. Since God is infinite and unchanging, it can be said that God is infinitely and unchangingly perfect or morally perfect. Well, in the English language, when we refer to something as being perfect, we mean that it's without flaws and without blemishes. Uh, A few lessons back, we likened God's righteousness to a glass of water uh, that has no contaminants in it, right? No bacteria in it. And the same analogy would work for God's perfection, uh, or his moral perfection. There isn't even the slightest variation away from moral perfection and purity within God's nature. Well, there are several Hebrew words which refer to perfection, and the implication varies with each word. Uh, Some of those implications would be uh, completeness, soundness, uh, blamelessness, faithfulness, uh, a state of being finished, or wholeness. And there are a couple different Greek words which refer to God's moral perfection, which we find in the New Testament, and those words imply uh, completeness, maturity, and perfection, just outright perfection. So the Bible teaches us that God is unequivocally perfect in every possible way. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 tells us that, "...He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he." And then in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31, we read David saying, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. And then David follows that up a couple verses later by saying, It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. That's in verse 33 of chapter 22. And then Psalm chapter 18 verse 30 echoes David's statement here saying, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Psalm chapter 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In Isaiah chapter 25 verse 1, the prophet Isaiah declares, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness. You have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. So obviously, you know, the Old Testament is filled with references to God's perfection. Everything that's related to God is perfect. The New Testament bears the same witness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, we find Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he proclaims, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father Is perfect. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, "Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will." In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul notes that his thorn in the flesh, whatever that might have been, his thorn in the flesh reveals the inverse relationship between Paul's weakness and God's perfect power. When he writes, but he said to me, that is, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, in Paul's weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me and James wrote that quote every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows that's James chapter 1 verse 17 so clearly uh, taking all the evidence into account scripture reveals that everything that God is or everything that God does is perfect in every way but while scripture certainly teaches God's perfection we can conclude that a morally perfect God can also be found through reason alone, just like C.S. Lewis did. All people have the ability to recognize that which is imperfect, right? When we see something, we know that it's imperfect, whether that be something immaterial, such as evil, or whether that be something material, uh, you know, like a person with a birth defect, for example. But it's logically impossible to recognize that something is imperfect unless we know what is perfect. Likewise, uh, we can't know that something is morally imperfect unless we know what is morally perfect, or have an idea, at least, of what is morally perfect. And so thus, there must be a perfect God who is the metaphysical source of all perfection. If a person has no idea whatsoever as to what a perfectly round circle looks like, for example, then obviously they can't know whether a circle is perfectly round or not. In the same way, we can't know what is morally wrong unless we first have at least some idea of what is morally right the ultimate source of all moral perfection can't be anything less than the ultimately perfect God himself. As Dr. Geisler notes in his book, uh, Systematic Theology 2, which of course is the book that this study is based on, he writes, God can be no less perfect than a good yardstick can be less than three feet long, end quote. And so we thus see that God's moral perfection can be arrived at either through scripture or through reason alone, or, Uh, also through a combination of both scripture and reason. And of course, you know, we would expect to see or to find that the Christian faith has always proclaimed God to be perfect in all of his ways, and that's exactly what we find. Justin Martyr wrote that, quote, God, the father of the universe, is perfect intelligence. Theophilus wrote that, quote, as the sun remains ever full, never becoming less, so does God always abide perfect, being full of all power and understanding and wisdom and immortality and all good, quote. And of course, um, in, in that day and age, in Theophilus' uh, day and age, they hadn't discovered the second law of thermodynamics, which uh, you know tells us that the universe is winding down, and thus they had no way of knowing that the sun is actually constantly becoming less, but the point that he's trying to make, the point that Theophilus is trying to make here is that God is the epitome of constant, unchanging perfection in all of his ways. Thomas Aquinas also wrote on this issue extensively, noting that quote, among beings there are some more and some less good, true, noble, and the like, but more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways, something which is the maximum perfect." End quote. He also noted that quote, "the first active principle god must need be most actual and therefore most perfect. God is the first active principle not material but in the order of efficient cause which must be most perfect." End quote. And John Calvin also wrote about this. He wrote that quote, "there is no comparison here made between god and us but the perfection of god means First, that free and pure kindness which is not induced by the expectation of gain, and secondly, that remarkable goodness which contends with the malice and ingratitude of men. End quote. So it's no surprise that the Christian faith has declared from the beginning that God is perfect in all of his ways. Well, there are some very serious and uh, they're also very common uh, objections that will come across when we're talking about the perfection of God. And probably the single most common objection to God's perfection stems from the presence of evil in the world, just like C.S. Lewis had. People will argue against God's perfection by noting that if God were perfect and all-powerful, he would have created a perfect world in which no evil exists. And thus, the argument maintains that either God is not perfect or he's not all-powerful. That would be the conclusion of that argument uh, as presented. But in response, we should note that this argument actually makes an assumption. It assumes that God would have no ultimately perfect purpose in allowing evil. In fact, the presence of evil can and does lead people to believe in God, just like it did with C.S. Lewis. And since a recognition of moral evil inherently demands that there must be a recognition of that which is morally good, the conclusion, uh, that is, again, that God is either not all-powerful or not perfect or both, doesn't really follow from the premises. It's uh, what we would call a non-sequitur argument. The, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. And further, we should note that part of God's perfect plan in creating the world involved human free will. It's human free will which is the source of evil in the world. The Bible tells us that God did indeed Create the world in a state of perfection, but because God wanted a genuine relationship with humanity, He didn't just want us to be puppets, He wanted a genuine relationship with us, He created humanity with free will, which humanity subsequently abused and which consequently led to the presence of evil. And finally, this argument is based on what one can perceive only in the here and now. In other words, it doesn't take into account that even though there's all this evil right now, the Bible does declare that one day all evil will be defeated once and for all. So God will take care of all evil. He just hasn't done it yet. So clearly the argument that the presence of evil in the world implies an imperfect God is flawed just through and through. Now, a second and final objection goes something like this. If God is perfectly holy, then God cannot, at the same time and in the same sense, be perfectly loving, since a perfectly holy God would judge and condemn all sinners, but a perfectly loving God wants to save all sinners. Thus, it's argued that God's perfect holiness and perfect love are incompatible, since one negates the possibility of the other. Well, in response This is really pretty simple. We should just point out that we don't claim that God's wrath, which stems from his holiness, and God's blessing, which stems from his perfect love, we don't claim that these two things are poured out on the same person At the same time, God's perfect wrath pours out on all sinners who are unrepentant. Yes, and God's love pours out on the repentant. Well, since a person can't be uh, at the same time and in the same sense, both repentant and unrepentant, they can't be on the receiving end of both God's wrath and his blessing. They can't be on the receiving end of both uh, his uh, perfect holiness and his perfect blessing at the same time. So does the fact that God is unchanging get compromised on this issue then? Absolutely not. God's position doesn't change. It's the sinner's position which changes in relation to an unchanging God when they put their faith in Christ. So hopefully that clears up any objections that you might, uh, that anybody might have with the moral perfection of God or just the perfection of God in general. And as always, if you guys have any further questions, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. I'm always happy to take your questions or to provide clarification when it's necessary or uh, when I forget or uh, neglect to about something. So anyway, if you have any objections or uh, any other uh, problems with God's perfection, definitely get those over to me. I also want to remind you guys just real quick in closing that uh, this month, everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries is going to get a copy of Greg Kokel's new book called Tactics. This is one of the best books that you can get for discussing your faith with people who don't share your faith. And it goes through a whole system of apologetics. It's going to teach you a lot of stuff that you need. Need in order to successfully engage with people who don't share your faith. So anyway, if you want to make a tax-deductible donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and on the right-hand side, you can click on the support box where you can make a tax-deductible donation through PayPal. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.